My name is Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And today, we're talking about Monty Hellman. You know, Roger Corman, the legendary exploitation producer, wrote a memoir called How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. Well, that title is not entirely accurate because he did lose a few dimes on Monty Hellman. I feel like Monty Hellman is one of those directors, though, that if you mention his name and the person you're talking to knows who he is, they'll go, oh yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, there's no in-between. You either do not know him at all or... Or you were a super fan. Where do you think that came from? Like, when did that connection get made where Monty Hellman got his cult audience? I can't speak for everyone, but I know that I first became aware of him as I and many cinephiles of my age did uh, for a lot of things uh, through his connection to Quentin Tarantino. Because in 1989, Monty Hellman directed a movie for a company called Live Entertainment called Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. And... That's a movie that even his staunchest fans tend to dismiss. But Hellman famously read the script for Reservoir Dogs and liked it and wanted to direct it, but Tarantino wanted to make it himself. So Hellman hooked him up with his bosses at Live Entertainment and the rest was history. So when I was a teen, there was this Reservoir Dogs DVD that had an interview with Tarantino where he was talking about his influences. And that's where I first heard of Monty Hellman. I remember Tarantino in that saying something like, well, everyone's favorite Monty Hellman movie is Tulane Blacktop. And I thought, wait, like, who's this everybody? Who knows who knows who Monty Hellman is? I need to be one of those everybody people. I mean, even though he has that Tarantino connection, and even though Hellman started his career working with Roger Corman, and he made Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, he is anything but an exploitation filmmaker. I feel that my connection with Monty Hellman came about even before I saw any of his movies, because he is the king of like put upon directors that like every project that he did was either not a success or it fell apart or he was just about to do this one thing and then it didn't happen. Did you know that Monty Hellman shot the opening car chase sequence in Robocop as a second unit director? Yep, he was involved in that for some reason. Yeah, he's somebody who never had a hit, never had anything even close to a hit. He had one big crack at big studio filmmaking. And that was a movie called Tulane Blacktop in the early 70s, which was supposed to be kind of like the next easy rider. But it did not do very well. Book ending that film are productions that he made for Roger Corman, which were not successful for even Roger Corman. After that, he worked only sporadically. He made a Western that didn't get released in the United States. Ten years after that, a movie called Iguana that didn't get released in the United States. And he ended his career in the early 2000s with Road to Nowhere, which is a movie that kind of only attracted the hardcore Monty Hellman devotees. (laughs) However, in that small and very compromised filmography, and I do think a lot of, not a lot of, certain of Monty Hellman's appeal is the kind of like, like what could have been quality. Like what if this guy had had more chances at it? But within what he accomplished, it's an extraordinarily high hit rate and an extraordinarily consistent vision across a range of genres, including some like really mangy production circumstances. For me, the first time I made the connection of, ooh, this is a cool guy, is on the DVD box set of the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, 
there was the TV scenes that Monty Hellman shot for it. And I think he must have done an intro or a commentary on it. Have you ever seen those scenes? Which basically for the TV version, it sets up Clint Eastwood's character as being sent down by the government. So he's always a good guy. So there isn't that gray with about him. And Monty Hellman shot those sequences where in classic Jackie exploitation style, you only ever see like Clint Eastwood's face in shadows or the back of his head. Yeah, and Monty Hellman also directed a lot of scenes for his mentor, Roger Corman, because Corman would make a lot of movies that were 60 minutes long, but to sell them to TV, they had to be at least 70 minutes. So like Monty Hellman would come to like the beach, you know, when they're filming Creature from Haunted Sea or something and just shoot 10 minutes of like, could could have been anything, 10 minutes of totally extraneous footage. What actors do we have? All right, let's get out there. I mean, Monty Hellman said that those pickups that he did for those Corman productions were some of the most fun, creative adventures that he had because no one cared what he did. As long as he came back to Corman under budget and had a certain number of minutes, he could do whatever he wanted. And he found that very liberating. You know, it must be emphasized, though, that of all the directors who came out of the Roger Corman factory, like your Coppola's, your Scorsese's, he was the one whose sensibility was, I think, kind of least like an exploitation filmmaker or least like a mainstream commercial filmmaker. There was an article, a tribute to him by his friend and colleague, Stephen Gatos in Variety that ran earlier this year when he passed away, where Gatos said he wanted to show that filmmakers such as Vyasajiro Ozu, Alain René, Nuri Bilge-Ceylon, Simon Lang, etc., could have an American friend. He wanted to prove that American film artists, including John Huston and George Stevens, need not be bright filmmaking lights in our rearview mirrors. And he is one of those guys that, like, he was right at the beginning with Corman, directing Beasts from Haunted Cave in 1959. That was part of, like, the early packages that Corman was making. And like Will mentioned, Hellman was someone that Corman went to all the time to do little jobs here or there. Did he have something to do with the terror? I feel like he shot a bunch of that as well. Yeah, I think he was one of the like uncredited directors who worked on the terror. A little background about Monty Hellman. He was born in New York in the 1920s. He eventually studied drama at Stanford. He studied film at UCLA, became an editor before he finished that second degree. He was one of the founders of a company called the Theater Goers Company. One of the things that company did was stage the Los Angeles premiere of Waiting for Godot. Big hit too. And he staged it as a Western. But Hellman's later work would often be compared to Beckett, uh, as well as Franz Kafka, which should indicate that he's somebody who is really interested in his films in stories about journeys that have no clear meaning and no clear destination. That is literalized in the movie Two Lane Blacktop, which is literally about a journey with no clear destination, as is the shooting, in fact. He's a filmmaker who, I guess like Antonioni as well, is stubbornly unwilling to tell you the why of anything. I think that like if you want to apply descriptor to Monty Hellman, it's existentialist. That can mean many things, but it's also an unknowability, a kind of airlessness about his pictures, but also a deep-seated emotion that if you connect with it, you will feel it bubble up to the surface. In interviews, Monty said stuff like he doesn't overthink his films. He's a very emotional filmmaker and that sometimes the analysis would take him aback but the way that he puts them together, it's all there to be discovered. Yeah, I definitely buy that. I mean, you look at a movie like Tulane Blacktop and you definitely want to understand what it's all about, what the true meaning of it is. There's a temptation to want to unlock it like it's a puzzle, but really it is 
ultimately about just this feeling, this sad, melancholy, but not just sad. Like, his movies are very funny, too. This feeling of being both adrift and not sure where you're going, but constantly moving forward anyway. I was fascinated to learn that before the film's release, the script was published by Rudy Wurlitzer, and it was a huge hit. People love the screenplay, which takes me aback because a lot of the feel of the movie, I put at the feet of Monty Hellman and the way that he directs it and the way that he edits it. And... I've never read the script. Maybe somebody who has could tell me if the script has that same kind of like aimless feeling. But like everything I associate with Monty Hellman that continues in his other films is from that kind of like Tulane Blacktop unknowability. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit more about Tulane Blacktop, which was his one big crack at it. His one Universal Pictures production came out in 1971. And as you said, it was based on this script that was literally published and was like the hottest script. This was a unique period in Hollywood history, right? Post Easy Rider. Yeah, the old studio system was collapsing and Easy Rider was this massive hit. And the studio executives like Lou Wasserman at Universal were like, we don't understand this, but clearly we got to rip this off. Something's going on here. And Tulane Blacktop is this movie about these two cars that are on this race, this mysterious race around the United States. One of the cars has a driver and a mechanic and a woman who they pick up. And uh, one of them is James Taylor, a very cool young guy before the James Taylor that we know today. Other one is Dennis Wilson, the beach boy himself. But then there's the other car, which is driven by Warren Oates, who's a little more affluent, closer to middle age, but definitely more frustrated than those people. He's very threatened. He's very intimidated by that car. And they're engaged in this sort of mysterious, unspoken, unnamed war between each other. And definitely the woman in the car, played by Lori Bird, is this source of tension between them. But so much is un spoken about this. And a lot of the film is in this contrast between the affect of, on the one hand, James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, and on the other hand, Warren Oates. You know, James Taylor and Dennis Wilson are very minimalist screen presences. I was going to say that, like, you know, if you're going to try to rip off Easy Rider, Monty Hellman consciously went in the direction that the two leads of his films are not Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson, who are incredibly charismatic in Easy Rider. In James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, not only do you often look at them and go, is that Dennis or is that James? I can't tell them apart because they both have long brown hair. And Warren Oates, on the other hand, is like very charismatic, but a very sweaty and desperate charisma. Brings the middle age to the screen, like really shiny, loud car, driving gloves. He has his collar up like he wants to be like a fancy lad. (laughs) But there's only (laughs) desperation that follows every time he speaks or he talks about or he goes through his story that changes like the Joker of how he got to where he is. And, you know, unlike Easy Rider, it doesn't give you the kind of catharsis that that movie often does. I mean, I know that Easy Rider is sort of meandering and aimless in its own way, but I mean, it's got that ending where they both get killed and it's got lots of iconic set pieces throughout. It's got the acid trip. It's got everything. Tulane Blacktop just sort of like continues on this particular mood and in this particular tempo without that catharsis until finally the movie ends 
literally with the film bursting into flames in the projector. When you watch the movie, you just have to understand that every time you feel like you're going in a direction where things are going to become clear, like, oh, there's a race that's going on. Oh, there's going to be romantic tension between the driver and the mechanic and Laurie Bird. Monty Hellman pulls you away from that. Like, he's not giving it to you. And at the end of the day, that's the point of the movie. That, like, it will never go in these directions because these characters are so lost in where they're going that it can never grab solid ground. I mean, Warren Oates literalizes at one point where he goes, listen, I got to go somewhere because if I go any faster, I'm just going to shoot off and I'm never going to come back down. Awfully beautiful movie too, you know, visually and sonically. Watching it now in my old age, I identify much more with the Warren Oates character than the James Taylor character. I don't identify with any of them because I don't drive and never have. Ah, yes, fair enough. (laughs) I just like to sit where I am completely comfortable. No, I'm the Lori Bird character, jumping from person to person, getting a ride wherever I can. So before this, in 1966, he made back-to-back westerns for producer Roger Corman. Uncredited Roger Corman. The shooting and ride in the whirlwind. And these movies were not particular successes at the time. I don't think they were even theatrically released in the United States, even though they are westerns. They're short. Like, you'd think you could throw them on a double bill and they'd play well. But, you know, the curse of Monty Hellman, I guess. They're now Criterion anointed classics. And maybe it's easier to appreciate them now with the benefit of hindsight, where you can see kind of like how they exist in the broader end of the West acid Western movement that was happening at the time. I don't know. But they are stripped down like waiting for Godot, like you mentioned, style plays where you don't quite know what's going on. Everybody's a little bit aggravating, but there's something just magnetic about what's happening on screen. Yeah, The Shooting, which is one of my favorite Hellman movies, is about a retired bounty hunter played by Hellman's muse Warren Oates and his friend played by Will Hutchins who are helping to transport this mysterious woman played by Millie Perkins through a desert towards some destination some town and they don't know anything about her she's appeared very mysteriously Hutchins is clearly very smitten with her whereas Warren Oates is suspicious of her Uh, she is someone who behaves very strangely she's quite mean and ill-tempered with them and the whole time they're followed by another mysterious stranger a gunslinger played by a young Jack Nicholson just a year or two before his breakout with Easy Rider. And he eventually joins up with them. He knows Millie Perkins in some way, but we don't know how they know each other. We don't exactly know what their scheme is. And eventually it continues along this way until the movie's uh, famously bizarre conclusion. You said that this is one of your favorite Monty Hellman films. What particular elements pop for you that you connect with? Oh God. Well, first of all, I feel like all the Monty Hellman movies are one of my favorite Monty Hellman movies because like, (laughs) oh, there's one of them I don't like very much, but we'll get to that. He just made so few. I don't know. It's great to have that particular melancholy Monty Hellman tone in a Western setting. The texture of the film is just so strong. And I think in particular, the story of this movie really lends itself to that particular uh, propulsive forward motion. The genre trappings of it, like give it extra texture. And the fact that it is a Western, there's already like archetypes and tropes and just like locations and settings and costumes that Monty Hellman can rest on. I mean, Tulane Black Top kind of has that as well, where it's the promise of a race. But I feel that a lot of people, when they saw Tulane Blacktop, they found it frustrating. It doesn't deliver that. While in the basis of the storytelling, the shooting will give you like someone's being chased. Stuff is happening because it's a Western and it's going through those beats. Yeah, frankly, I don't see why it couldn't have been a hit at the time. I have to say, though, I'm having trouble talking about the shooting and all of these movies because I find in general the particular mood of Monty Hellman's work difficult to articulate. 
uh, so many of the pleasures of them seem so like ineffable. I'm going to jump forward very far ahead to 1988 when he made a movie called Iguana, which he made in Europe. It was his first movie in like 10 years. And along with Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, which came out the next year, it would be his last movie for over 20 years. And Iguana is this story about a disfigured man, a man who's like half of his face has all of these, you know, wrinkles and pustules on it to make him look kind of like an iguana. He's on this 19th century whaling ship where he's constantly being uh, picked on and tortured by the other crew members. And at one point when they're on a deserted island, he's able to escape. And then he kidnaps a couple of people who have been thrown overboard from the ship and he decides to create his own society. He's renounced gods. He's basically declared himself king and god. He wants justice for himself, so he treats these people that he's kidnapped as he was once treated. Again, I'm, I'm struggling to articulate it. It's a film of such like ugly, horrible beauty. First of all, it's very visually beautiful. It's lit like a goddamn Renoir painting and the island is so beautiful with all its heavy rocks, but the soundscape of it is also so beautiful. There's this almost continual sound of crashing waves throughout it. And the guy who plays the main character, Everett McGill, has this very strange, like, pseudo-upper-crust British accent, this very affected accent that's very strange and hypnotic. I find it frustrating because, like, when you hear the plot synopsis and you finally watch the movie, you know... Like, Monty, this is never going to be a success. What are you doing to yourself? It has a particular forward momentum, but a pace and a style that is very unique and distinctive. Well, I would say that, like, Monty's films, like, none of them really ran that long. Like, you look at Iguana, and it's just, like, 100 minutes in its director's cut form. Like, those aren't Antonioni-style, like, oh, just stay in the images. Because Monty has so much control over everything that he's showing the viewer. And that's the thing about his movies is that while you could describe them as, ah, they're a little bit airless, they're kind of meandering, Hellman knows what he's doing and he knows what particular feelings he wants to invoke in his audience. I think there's a particular rhythm that his films have. There's a particular tone that is sustained throughout. And Iguana is definitely a Hellman film in the way that like it's about the notes that he doesn't play. First of all, I mean, it's courageous, I think, how resolutely himself, the main character played by Everett McGill remains. Oh yeah, he's a jackass throughout the film. <laughs> he's a jackass throughout the film, but he's like a hurt jackass. He's somebody- who Yeah, like he can be a victim of like terrible things and then still be like- not a sympathetic like, oh, you know, he's the monster. So he'd be like a nice guy, right? That they're treating badly. He can react like, you know, how a human would and is like lashing out to the people around him as he well. He has this mistress who is like a noble woman who he's kidnapped, basically. And he, he continually, he takes as his sex slave, basically. And so much of her is unexplained because like she, you know, she went from kind of one kind of enslavement to another kind of enslavement. And uh, all of these characters, I think, are granted a certain amount of privacy by Hellman. Like we, we only know about them, about them and their feelings, what they tell us in the dialogue. And as a filmmaker, Hellman doesn't editorialize a lot. He doesn't use a lot of music and fancy editing to guide our emotions. You've just got this kind of continuous, like rhythmic 
uh, lapping of the waves as these characters go about their business. And Helman looks upon this society that's being created on this island with, with a God's eye view of it and without any sentimentality, with, with just a lot of kind of cold objectivity. But in there is an enormous emotional power. I think that lapping waves is a great metaphor for Monty Hellman's filmmaking style, which is like water coming in. It seems like it's going to be right in front of you. You'll be able to grab hold of it, but then it recedes from the viewer because he's not giving you those things. But it's happening, like you said, at a rhythmic pace. So there's its own hypnotic qualities that you can get involved with the way that it's just proceeding. But at the same time, something like Tulane Blacktop, when it reaches those final moments, if you've connected with it, it is deeply emotional in the way that it plays out. Let's talk about a movie that he made after Tulane Blacktop in the 70s called Cockfighter, which was his final film with producer Roger Corman. One of the few movies that Roger Corman produced in the 70s that was not a financial success. I mean, I know that I probably like this one a bit better than you, although it is difficult viewing for anyone. Man, this is a movie I really want to love because it's got Warren Oates, it's adapted from a Charles Williford novel, who I love, and it's Monty Hellman. (laughs) And it's about goddamn cockfighting, though. Like, literal chickens fighting on screen, not faked. And it's tough to watch. It's tough to watch, although I have to say, filmed beautifully by Nestor Almendros. Yep, that's right. Who was uh, Francois Truffaut and Eric Kramer's cinematographer. Some of the most beautifully photographed real cockfights that you will ever see in a movie. And I do think that the film is easier to take in when you know that Charles Williford often writes sociopaths and psychopaths and that, you know, Warren Oates' character has a little bit about of that about him. Yeah, so Warren Oates plays, what would you call the guy, like a, a coxman? He's a guy who has chickens and he puts them in the underground cockfighting circuit and that's how he makes his living. And- oh, because there's so many elements here, though, that I would love, like, the little tricks they do. Like, you cut into the cock's beak so it looks like he's injured, so the odds would be good. Like, that's the kind of procedural stuff I really like. But then I have to watch chickens fight for real as I chow down on the chicken that I just cooked myself. (laughs) Well, okay, but if I can try to sell you on the movie, I mean, the movie begins as... Warren Oates has made this bad bet with Harry Dean Stanton, who's another cockfighting impresario. He loses the bet where, like, he loses his house, his wife. Oh, I'm really bothered the fact that he, like, gives Harry Dean Stanton his wife. Like, not good. Hey, listen, I'm not saying this is a movie about a nice guy or good people. No, I know, I know. (laughs) It's a quintessential Hellman protagonist in the sense that, like, this is a guy who loses everything. And by the way, takes a vow of silence. He takes a Uh, but he does narration throughout the movie that feels to me like a roger corman concession absolutely well you heard the stories right when they kept trying to recut it that at one point joe dante when like warnos goes to sleep roger corman made him put like footage of like cars exploding oh well that's because when the movie first flopped corman was like okay we got to figure out a way to make some money off this stuff like yeah put it put in some tits put in more tits doesn't matter that the tits don't match there have to be tits in here i mean it has like a million hilarious alternative titles doesn't it like born to kill wild drifter gambling man the war notes character he's this quintessential hellman protagonist where like he's a guy who loses everything and it doesn't entirely matter like he's made this vow of silence it it has less to do with with anything except his life as this itinerant wanderer and the movie has this enormous sense of atmosphere of just shitty rustic 
cockfighting world, you know? At one point, like, the organizer of a tournament explains how they're just going to do it in the hotel room because <laughs> they can't do it anywhere else. Like, I love that kind of stuff. But man, this movie, I've watched it a number of times, each time being like, I want to like it this time. Yeah, I can't get into it. How about, though, we did both watch Hellman's final film from 2011, which is one that I think you like more than I do, Road to Nowhere. So this film came out of nowhere, where it's like one of those last swings by a director, where it's like, whoa, Hellman hasn't directed a film since, you know, the short he made in Trapped Ashes. And before that, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 was the last feature. 15 years before then. So I actually never watched this movie because it got really bad notices when it came out. And I was like, okay, you know, I don't want to see poor Hellman flopping around. But when I watched it this time, I feel like I got the sensation from it that Will always wants when he watches The Canyons (laughs) in his like yearly foolish, like Don Quixote-like quest. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to like it this time. I'm going to like it. And every time a review comes up on Letterboxd, he's like, didn't like it. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, that's interesting. I mean, this movie does have its defenders. Like it was, it was one of those movies that like, Ignati Vishnevetsky really went to bat for on at the yeah, movies. Yeah, Peter Labuza and the likes. Like it was a big movie kind of hit in the day, but the the mainstream critics didn't go for it all that much. It's a tangled puzzle box story about a film director who I think his name is Mitchell Haven, so he has Monty Hellman's initials, who is making a movie about a real life death of a woman. And listen, this guy is a hot shot director. He can get anyone. I mean, this movie looks like David Dakota directed it at times like it's so low budget I mean at one point the director says on camera hey why get a a red viper when you can get three Canon 5Ds for the same price there's a scene where this director is watching a TV interview with Leonardo DiCaprio promoting The Departed (laughs) yeah we could get Leonardo DiCaprio right (laughs) it's like buddy come on Leonardo DiCaprio is talking about working with Jack Nicholson and I have to believe that this is like Hellman knows what he's doing and putting this in the movie because he's making a joke about the fact that of course they're not going to get Leonardo DiCaprio they're not even going to get Hellman's old friend Jack Nicholson I was going to say is that like an in-joke in-joke where it's about Jack Nicholson kind of leaving Monty Hellman behind considering they were so close when they were doing Corman stuff I think so I think it has to be why else would you put that in the movie and so this director he sucks he's the worst (laughs) like every time he was on screen I was like oh man come on okay I had a lot of trouble just with this movie like getting on its wavelength figuring out what tone Hellman was going for it's one of those movies where I was watching it all the time thinking is this supposed to be like this is it supposed to be this stilted and awkward and I haven't quite come to that conclusion yet although you know signs point to maybe it feels very calculated because like at the beginning you're watching the movie within the movie which is very slow and kind of uh, oblique long takes and then suddenly when the narrative kicks in it's just very quick scenes out of chronological order because like if you think about some of the scenes you're like wait oh that happened before what we saw in the previous scene Hellman is like fucking with the audience and all those scenes by the way are incredibly awkward they're like some of the early scenes in Inland Empire like there's a scene where Mitchell Haven doing an interview with Peter Bart from Variety played by the actual Peter Bart and it's one of the like weirdest most awkward interview scenes I've ever seen in a movie and there's this bizarre 
montage, this bizarre romantic montage where the director, Mitchell Haven, is going on a long date with his leading lady, played by Sharon Sossman. Ah, Mrs. 40 Days, 40 Nights Herself. Just everything about the way the scene is timed and shot seems like a little weird. I just found it like so hypnotic in the way that it was presented. And I'm not going to say that Monty Hellman intended it that way throughout. But maybe he realized how it was, so he tried to obfuscate it as he was editing it. And I just found that fascinating, that it seems like the mystery is about to reveal itself to the viewer. But then you're like, wait, no, it still doesn't make any sense what we're watching. Like, what is real? What is not? Is this a con of some kind? You'll never get an answer by the end of the movie. Yeah, I should say that I had a really hard time following the plot, and I paid very close attention but i found it really interesting when like 50 minutes in i realized oh this is a movie about laurie bird the actor that appeared in cockfighter and tulane blacktop and committed suicide when she was 26 yeah okay so mitchell haven is monty hellman and the guy he shoots towards the end is that art garfunkel i think that's definitely who that is <laughs> shannon sasaman is i mean it's not like beat for beat but the fact that, like, you know, he starts a relationship with the actor that's in his movie, like, Monty Hellman went through all of that stuff as well. And it's also, like, real on-the-nose, like, old filmmaker making a young person's movie or trying to, which I really enjoyed. Like, some real Mort Rifkin, like, watching The Seventh Seal and, like, ah, nobody makes it like this anymore. Oh, my God. Every time there was one of those scenes where the guy, this, like, 30-year-old filmmaker is watching The Seventh Seal and he's watching it on his bed and he's like... What a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> it's so awkward. That that guy, the guy giving that performance is so fucking awkward. Oh, he is not good. But I think that like all of those elements together, I found very appealing about the motion picture, whether it was intended or not. I mean, like the conclusion it comes to, I'm like, ah, I don't buy this for a second. <laughs> but everything leading up to that. I found very enthralling. Yeah, I mean, I know that he didn't write the script, but it certainly feels very personal for Hellman. It feels like this pure expression of him. And I mean, I gotta say the tone of the movie is it's consistently awkward. Like the tone is as consistent as it is in any of the earlier Hellman movies. It's a weird tone. It's that Canyon's tone. It's an old guy trying to make a young person's movie. And that's what I find really interesting with it. But unlike Paul Schrader, who I feel didn't push things far enough in the canyons, Monty Hellman's not taking any prisoners with Road to Nowhere. <laughs> like, he's not trying to make any connections or friends with his audience. <laughs> Certainly not. Well, it flopped like they all did. That was it for Monty Hellman. He opened an Airbnb. That's what he did for the rest of his life. And you know, I will always regret that I didn't go to his Airbnb. Uh, we would talk about it like every couple of months being like, man, Monty Hellman still has his Airbnb, right? Yeah, we would like Google it and be like, hey, look, there are reviews for his Airbnb. Wouldn't it be great to go to that? And it's like, fuck, should have gone. Should have gone. You'd hear from people who'd be like, hey, uh, Harry Dean Stanton came over one night. Oh my God. <laughs> what if you're there and there's a knock at the door. It's Jack Nicholson visiting Monty Hellman for the first time in 30 years. And he's like, I'm sorry, Monty. And you're just sitting on the couch watching it happen. I would say, uh, hi, Jack. Loved you in anger management. <laughs> uh, Monty Hellman. I think that is cult reputation will only grow over the years, especially with like more of his movies being rediscovered and stuff like Ride the Whirlwind and the Shooting being finally kind of like put on the Criterion Collection alongside Tulane Blacktop. Yeah, I mean, for so many years, he was obscure because the movies were obscure. Tulane Blacktop was a movie that was dumped by Universal. The Roger Corman ones were never like the crown jewels of the Roger Corman library. Iguana, uh, China 9, Liberty 37, these movies were just kind of like neglected and forgotten and 
you know, I think he's one of those filmmakers too. You like we were talking about where we first heard about him but he's somebody whose reputation i think has really been fostered by the internet it's been fostered by like movie and letterboxd and all of these developments of recent years that have shone a light on these people who aren't in any of the real established canons and if you really want a great look at monty hellman's personality check out the commentary he did on the movie shatter which was a film monty hellman was fired from and while doing the commentary he's watching it for the first time have you ever seen that movie will i have not no it was a shaw brother Hammer co-production. So it stars Stuart Whitman, but also has Dick Lung, Lily Lai Lai, Bruce Laukar Wing. And as he's watching it, Monty Hellman's like, wait a minute, I directed like 80% of this. And you get to hear it happen in real time. <laughs> All right. I'm putting that on my to-do list. Okay. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So our first letter is from Joe Clark, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, I want to thank you for continuing to make a great podcast. Thank you. Your thoughtful takes on films of all origins, aspirations, and budgets has challenged some of my previous approaches to art. Ooh, nice. And your recommendations have been a bright spot in the darkness of this past year. For instance, playing the Gold Ninja Blu-ray of Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla for my wife. Oh, no. (laughs) Sent us down a rabbit hole of Jerry Lewis movies, and now she's obsessed. Will, look what you've done. I just wish Jerry Lewis was alive to hear that. I wish Jerry Lewis was alive to know that Sammy Petrillo, his impersonator, the man who he spent so many years hating, has brought him a fan. Joe, I hope you listen to the complete vinyl album of Prank Calls by Sammy Petrillo on that disc. (laughs) I know the subject of Jerry Lewis has been explored in depth on the program, especially Lewis's directorial efforts, but we'd love to hear your take specifically regarding the Martin Lewis movies. You know what, Will? That would be a good topic for an episode, Martin Lewis movies. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, the Martin Lewis movies, I have a pretty standard take on them, which is that most of them are, you know, potboilers. They are like any comedies of the 50s. They're like Abbott and Costello movies that you plug Martin and Lewis in. Like Martin and Lewis, much of their appeal is said to have been how explosive and unpredictable they were in a live setting, how wildly improvisatory. However, there are some good Martin and Lewis movies, uh, artists and models, Hollywood or bust. Have you ever seen Money from Home? The first 3D comedy starring Martin Lewis. No, I think that's one that I haven't seen, actually. On an episode of the Gilbert Godfrey podcast, John Leguizamo said that was like one of his favorite comedy movies ever. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure he watched that one when he was a kid. When I was a kid, my local blockbuster had The Caddy which is one of the Martin and Lewis movies, not one of the better ones. But like, I watched that movie so many times. So the letter actually continues on the same topic. I have a question. I recently became the proud owner of a couple dozen red and blue 3D glasses. Long story. And I was wondering if you had any favorite 3D movies you would recommend. Best wishes, Joe Clark. I'll go with kind of the cliche answer of I like House of Wax with Vincent Price. In fact, I was lucky enough in I believe the year like 2003, 2004, when I was just a teenager, I went with my friend to the Royal Cinema to see House of Wax in 3D, like on film. And that was such a great night. The scene halfway through that movie where there's like a guy with a paddle ball who paddle balls into the audience. Oh, so, so fun. Did I see with you Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D when they showed it? Yeah, they showed that. We saw it at the Young and Dundas Cineplex of all places. That was a blast. I love 3D movies, but unfortunately, the 
pop-out effect doesn't work for me. It's like something to do with my eyes and astigmatism. So I get the depth of 3D, but I want like people like pointing things in my face and then popping out. I have a very vivid memory as a kid going to the Muppet 3D thing in Florida and being floored by the 3D in that movie. And I've been chasing that dragon ever since, even though my eyes will never allow me to see that beautiful 3D-ness. Well, I'm sorry that you're not able to get that. I mean, I'm sure you would be disappointed by it if you eventually did get it. I keep watching coming at you being like, I want the stuff to pop out of the screen at me. Oh, can I tell you about another great movie experience I had? In uh, 2009, I have a great memory for what years I saw these things in. Uh, 2009, I went to that theater in the beaches. You sound like a dying Groucho. You're like, ah, back in 2009. Remember that one screening we went to? Oh, you mean the Fox Theater? I saw a double bill of Andy Warhol's Frankenstein and Friday the 13th Part 3 3D. They had an amazing 3D film festival. They played like every 3D print they could get their hands on. They also did like, uh, what is it? Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, the Charles Bain 3D movie. Yeah, well, never get that again no that'll never really happen again i remember that happening and being like i don't have time to go i'm sure it'll happen next year oh what a fool i was yeah i remember in andy warhol's frankenstein that scene where like udo kier gets impaled and there's just this big spear sticking out of his chest with like his liver on it popping out into the audience so great so thank you very much for your letter and if anybody else has some questions comments you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com so what are we doing on our patreon this week will this week we are talking about one of the cast members of house of wax as a matter of fact <laughs> a man by the name of charles bronson yep will got that bronson itch as many people who are getting closer to middle age get <laughs> and he wanted to check out some bronson action that's right we both watched his is canon films classic Murphy's Law. And, you know, we just bat around the subject for a while, talking about the Death Wish movies, talking about, you know, any, talking about Kinjate, talking about any of the great Charles Bronson stuff. Do you want to hear Will suddenly have a wave of disgust and horror? Like the biggest one probably audible on any podcast? You want to check the episode out and see what triggers it? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard you uh, ever react that way before. I'd be like, oh my God, no. So uh, you can listen to that episode, $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and next week we're talking about louise brooks was it godard or was it uh the uh henry langlois or who was it who says there is no garbo there is no dietrich there is only louise brooks that's uh, one of those so louise brooks is probably one of the most iconic faces of early hollywood and you would be shocked she did not star in that many movies and most of the big hits weren't even hollywood pictures because she's probably best known for pandora's box and diary of a lost girl two german films directed by G.W. Paps. So those are the movies we're going to watch, and I'm sure we're also going to dip into some of her late period writings. In her dotage, she wrote many articles that were collected in the classic book Lulu in Hollywood. Hey, and if you really want to get into it, you could watch Empty Saddles, a 1936 poverty western directed by Leslie Selander, the guy who directed The Vampire's Ghost and The Catman of Paris. Hey, maybe I'll check that one out. That sounds fun. Hey, Justin, do you remember that we saw Louise Brooks's apartment when we were in Rochester? Oh, yes. After the Nitrate Film Festival, you're like, Justin, Justin, stop here. And you're like, just wanted to look at it. The place where she spent a lot of her, um, I guess, waning years. She got banned from the Rochester Library because she would like write in the margins of books too much. Like she <laughs> would write in Charlie Chaplin's autobiography, like disparaging comments about his endowment. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I wonder if those books are out there. They probably just tossed them, I yeah. bet. Oh, fuck. What a well, waste. Well, I feel like it's going to be a real fun topic to tackle, and we'll be doing that next week. And until then, my name is Justin Aglou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
interrupt this program to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Trailhouse, Michael Garland, Primrose Pass, Dr. William Rosno, Austin Kimmel, Pedro, and James Long. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And as I usually remind you, listener, if you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you did. And now, we return you to your regular scheduled programming. So I got a book from Amazon this week, a book that has been sitting there. Oh, by the way, you shouldn't shop at Amazon. It's very bad. It's a terrible company. That's not an endorsement. Unless you're buying Motor on Turn or any of the other books we published. <laughs> there are some things that you can only get on Amazon, and that was the case for what I got this week, which which is a paperback called The Movies of Amy Yip. Wait, who's Amy Yip, Will? I mean, I know who it is. I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know who Amy Yip is, you dirty dog, you. Do I? Boy, boy, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Yip is, or was, still is, she's still alive, but she's not active anymore. She was a popular star of kind of softcore, sexy Hong Kong movies in the early 90s. Category 3 films. We've talked about that before. That's right. Category 3 films. Her big movies were Erotic Ghost Story, as well as Sex and Zen. Those were pretty big hits in the early 90s. She was... And she was also known for other big things. I'm doing like the Groucho uh, eyebrows now, and nobody can see me doing uh, this. My eyes just popped out of my head like a Tex Avery wolf. Yeah, I remember when I was a teen, when I was a boy, coming into his identity, going to the Chinatown malls. I got a DVD, a bootleg DVD of a film that she was in called Pretty Woman. I think it's a ripoff of the Julia Roberts film, but like veers from the plot very heavily. But it was a movie that I became aware of because in Thomas Weiser's book, Asian Cult Cinema, awful book, <laughs> we both devoured it as kids. He described it as having a 10 minute shower scene with Amy Yep. And I thought, well, holy shit, if I ever stumble on this in the wild, I've got to get it. And sure enough, I did. And I got it. You know, it's weird that I've never seen any Sex and Zen movies. Oh, well, the first one's pretty fun. Yeah, that's what I hear. And the remake of it was a huge hit uh, a couple years ago. But anyway, getting back to the book... Was it mostly just images in the book, Will? No, actually, it wasn't mostly images. It was mostly text, but it's it's like a zine, basically. How dare you uh, say something is like a zine disparagingly? Well, listen, I like it. It's good. I don't want to be down on it. It's like, it's a cute book. It's fun. It's nice that he made it. But I think that when you brought it up, uh, to me, it was like, whoa, somebody wrote a book on Amy Yip, like in English. Well, I knew there had to be a catch. I knew that this is not going to be like the exhaustive, extremely researched Amy Yip book. But what that made me think of is like, wow, anybody can publish a book now. And is that good? Or is it bad, Will? I think it's good. I don't see any downside. I think it's good. Yeah, I don't see any downside. The only downside <laughs> is you might accidentally buy a bad book. Yeah, that's it. And you know what? If it was published by a big publisher, you could still buy a bad book. Yeah, I just think it's great that there are like so many more books about so many more things than ever before. Do you know you cannot apply for governmental funding if the books that you were you wrote are self-published? Really? Wow. I mean, it's the same deal with uh, movies that you cannot get a grant. And this is going to make you laugh unless you have distribution as a Canadian film in theaters. I'm sensing a lot of long nights where Justin is pouring over the requirements, like reading the footnotes, trying to be like, how, how can this be? How can this be? Well, I'm like, what film that's Canadian, Will, have you ever heard has been distributed, <laughs> like widely? That's not Bone Cop, Bad Cop. Not many. Yeah, a little movie called uh, Red Green's Duct Tape Forever. So, like, those are crazy rules that are written by, like, the elites trying to stomp the little guy. Because why would a book like one about Amy Yip have any less value than, I don't know, you know, Seth Rogen's Diaries that you can go pick up at the Shopper's Drug Mart? Yeah, that fucking shit. Who needs that? It's great that... 
Uh, the internet has fostered these opportunities for people to write things like Amy Yip books. It's great that like your Albert Pyun book is amazing. And like it's it's changed the discourse about Albert Pyun. And that's a book that like no one would have published. <laughs> I mean, maybe like Bear Manor Media would have published it, maybe. But yeah, like, I mean, I feel like Bear Manor Media and like McFarland, they're like, yeah, you pay us to publish your book. And then we turn around and we charge like $50 for it. There's nobody who probably would have published the Albert Pyun book who would have made it worth your while. And yeah, you put it out on your own and it did well and it's changed the Albert Pune discourse. Well, I think that it's important now that people can get books out there. And like we said earlier, like you'll know if it's bad or good. <laughs> like it's not hard to pick up a book and go, all right, is this interesting? Like, does this person have something to say? I mean, my trick for any Bear Manier and McFarland book is I crack it open and I look down. If I see a plot synopsis and I flip a bunch of pages and I look down again and it's another plot synopsis, I'm like, not for me. And I put it back on the shelf. Yeah, smart. Because that's the curse of those kind of self-published books. But yeah, the more the merrier is what I say. Get the most niche subjects possible. How else would I have on my shelf a book about Wheeler and Woosley that was published by McFarland? I just ordered that. <laughs> Did you? Wait, didn't I send you a link that someone is publishing a book on the Ritz Brothers? Oh, man. So good. It's a wild west out there. So you know what? If you have a book you want to write, write it. Especially if it's the most niche subject possible. 